You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast uh, series. This is Oliver Tonby speaking. Today, we're going to be talking about reimagining food retail in Asia after COVID-19. I am joined today by Dimfa Kuypers. She's a senior partner out of our Singapore office, and she leads our uh, global grocery service line. I'm also joined by Simon Wintels. He's a partner in a Singapore office, and he leads our retail and consumer goods uh, practice there. So I'm going to uh, warm up a little bit before we get into food retail. Dimfke, I know that you have five children. Can you tell us how has it been to do homeschooling for the last several months? It's been uh, highly interesting. I must admit that my respect for teachers has quadrupled over the last few months. I think the most fun part of it is that I have my middle son permanently with me in my office. And then the managing the mute button when you need to tell him to get his act together and to get doing stuff and your team still on has not always gone fluently. So it's been interesting for teams who I then saw visually react like, what? Yes, we'll get going. (laughs) (laughs) And Simon, what about you? Two young children at home. How's this work for you? It's been uh, uh, similar to Dimfka. I've, I've managed to really be, become an expert at controlling the mute button, especially during uh, uh, lunch hours when the kids are downstairs. And half of the time, love what they get, uh, they get for lunch, and, and half of the time, they don't. And, uh, and that's very noticeable. <laughs> and um, can I ask both of you, if you look back over the last uh, few months, what has surprised you most? Dimfka. Yeah, so for me, what has surprised me most is really not so much the shift in consumer behavior we saw, but the speed by which. And to use a phrase one of our colleagues used, it's really decades in days. And I'll give you one example. The increase in e-commerce sales in the U.S. in eight weeks has been as big as in 10 years prior. So it's truly decades in days. Yeah, the speed of what we're, we're seeing, the speed of the shift. Simon? Yeah, very similar in how some behavior has changed very rapidly. People that never used online for their grocery shopping, people that have expressed a a real sense of taking care of their body, their immunity, their health. Uh, We've never seen numbers this high and this fast, uh, especially in in the food retail uh, industry. I understand. So... Let's let's start digging in. And uh, how is COVID-19 affecting people's behaviors, their spending, their expectations? Dimfke, why don't you take the first pass of that? Yeah, sure, Oliver. So we see four shifts, and they're fairly consistent across countries. And we did research under 5,000 consumers among seven Asian countries. The difference by which differs, but they're basically four. So the first one is really what we already were discussing, this shift to online, right? There's been a massive surge of online shopping. Second shift, the shift to value. As people's livelihoods and financial situations get impacted, that is a tough one uh, that people are facing on how they spend. The third one is around health, safety, and local. And it's interesting to see how even today people are actually afraid, up to 20 to 40% of our population, to go shopping because people are afraid for their own personal health. 
And then finally, COVID has also initiated a real shock to loyalty because either you were on stock or you were not. And if you were not on stock, you get out of people's loyalty behavior. And so there were four real big shifts. Interesting. Let's let's dig into the first. The first one you mentioned was the shift to to online. So expand on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. So what's fascinating is that during, you know, obviously, depending on the country, the sophistication of retailers is very different in online, right? But even in countries like Indonesia, there was a ten percent plus uplift in people wanting to go online, even the infrastructure wasn't necessarily existing. And it went as high as in China, where 50% of Chinese consumers who hadn't purchased food grocery online before now did and will continue to do so. And you see a real lingering shift even days after uh, and you know, weeks after by now, since uh, the country is opening up again, uh, particularly in, uh, in China and Korea. Yeah, no, and maybe if if I may, right? So, th- so there's been an in- increase in, in online, but the, the overall food grocery purchases is also up, right? And that is part by stores being closed, but it's also part because the behavior has shifted away from food service, right? Restaurants, people are eating out less and less so and, and cook more themselves at home. So that, that those two shifts both have contributed really to a, to an acceleration of online. And if we stay on this topic for a while, do you expect this to, to last after we get back to the next normal, so to speak? Yeah, I do. I think mean, if I look now at, at China as an example, I think we can probably say, is, is despite Beijing locking up a bit again this weekend, most food service players are back open. Still, though, food uh, traffic to those outlets is only back at 70%, give or take, prior to, to COVID. So while you know 95% of the outlets are open again, Consumers don't come back. And if you ask them, that's not just because they're reducing capacity of seeding and practicing safe distancing. It's really because consumers prefer to order in home food delivery and cook at home, to Simon's point. I understand. So one big shift is the shift to online. I think the second area you mentioned was the shift to to value, if I understood what you said correctly. Simon, uh, would you care to elaborate about that? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So this... And COVID-19 is, is first and foremost a very much a humanitarian and a health crisis, right? But the the after effects of this are likely to be significant to to people's incomes, right? So when we asked the, the thousands of consumers across Asia Pacific how they think about COVID and, and how that COVID-19 and how that impacts their income, they say that they the vast majority expects significant difficulty in, in making uh, ends meet. Right? And as a result, they have indicated that they're significantly going to change their spending behavior. And, and you see that specifically in discretionary spending, so spending on non-essential items. So you see a, a relatively significant drop across countries in discretionary spending, but also in essential spending. So you see people indicating that they more and more care about what they're getting for their for their money's worth. So the phrase value for money and affordability will will become more and more uh, relevant in the uh, in the weeks, months, and years to come. Do you see any difference between countries here? You do, I think, in the composition of it. So so if you look at the different social demographic pyramids across the different countries and and the income that the different countries have, you will see a difference in how some of these effects play out. So especially for our food retailers that are wondering, will people come back to my store or will they go, will people go back to wet markets or will they do more online? That behavior very much depends on the infrastructure as well as the social demographic 
construct of the country. So yes, there will be differences in how it plays out, but I think the actual emotion and the the, the need to reduce spending and, and the way that people spend, that's relatively consistent. We do see that consistently across countries. I understand. Dimfke, you were you uh, you were saying something? Yeah, I think what will be interesting to watch specifically for Asia in this context is if you look at the previous crisis, typically private label increased, right? So retailers own brands. And that's not been such a big thing yet in most of Asian countries. Some countries it is there, but it's not that big. And what's interesting in our conversations with retailers these days is that there's really a real fit, thought through about how can we offer this private label? Should we do more of this? How are we expanding? So it will be interesting to follow to what extent that takes off as a way to help people fulfill more value um, for their customers. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Let's turn to area number three. I think you said health, safety, and increase in local uh, preference. What, what does this mean? I don't know which which one of you wants to take that one first. Yeah, look, I'm happy to take it. It's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag, right? We, we put in three things that are, and it somehow exemplifies the somewhat unease that consumers have with their current lifestyles and how they deal with it. And there are three different elements to it. One is the actual feel of physical safety and of going out. So depending on the country, you know, 20 to 40% of consumers really is scared to go out of the house to go grocery shopping, right? So that's one part, and that's lingering. I think the second part to this is around real wellness and people thinking through what they eat, what their diets look like, whether they exercise, you know, whether it strengthens their immunity, and how much fresh they consume. And to my personal big surprise, you know, up to two-thirds, three-quarters of Asian populations actually say to be watching their diets and thinking through exercising and expect to continue to do so, even in countries that historically had way less of a, way less of a focus uh, on, you know, exercising and healthy and nutrition. So I think that that's a, the second part of it. And then the final part is around local brands. Some Asian countries that were very much focused on foreign brands for quality perception reasons like China. And we actually see now there is a bit of a shift back from that. So there's actually quite a big trust in local brands and things that people know may also part to be due with the supply chain being in order for some of the local products and less so from some of the foreign products. So people have felt less of the disruption, but that's you know to be seen how that, that pans out. But there's, a, there's actually quite some loyalty to more the local Asian uh, players from that perspective. Got it. Let's shift to the, the fourth topic that you mentioned, which was loyalty. Simon. So the question here is, is how much of this will be lingering and how much will be, will be reset after stores reopen? But what, we, what we've seen over the past months is that as a result of measures where people were confined to their homes and shopping was restricted, people have changed where they shop. So the primary location that fulfills the need for their grocery shop has changed up to 70% in some countries, but on average between 20 and, and, and 40%. And we, we see that for stores and we see it for brands, right? And for stores, it has been driven by the actual location of the store. And for brands, it has been driven by availability of the brands in the store. Now, the, the real question is, if stores reopen again, will people go back to their old shop? Or are they actually happy with where they started shopping during 
COVID-19. And we see a significant amount of people in some countries, up to 30%, say, I'm actually very happy with my new choice of store, and I might stay there, right? Understand. Divke, would you like to add on this? No, I, I think it's it's very much true. And what's interesting to see is that some of the retailers really have profited. So if you look, for instance, um, in some of the retailers of China, those who were able to offer both online and offline their goods, they've actually seen surges, not just of, of, of sales, but also of profits that are anywhere close to 40% and you know a huge share of market share increase. Whereas some other places, particularly those that had you know, inner city, train city, train station locations, you know, close to business districts that were closed down have suffered tremendously, right? So it's it's really a, uh, you know, a very granular shift depending on what stores and what channels you had to see how you're faring, if you will. I understand. So listen, so what I've heard so far in terms of the, what are some of these, these big shifts that you see when it comes to customer behaviors are number one, a big shift acceleration to to online a further shift to value increase importance of value for money i heard you talking about the importance of personal health of safety when you're shopping of increased trust in local brands and and finally potentially quite big shifts in uh, in loyalty that uh, the consumers have to different retailers now if you look at all of this these this is kind of a lot of change happening at the same time for retailers. So before we talk about what retailers actually do, how do they respond? Can I just ask you, how, when, when you speak to CEOs of, of large retailers, what's their state of mind? What are they thinking about? I think all of them as their primary concern, as Simon mentioned, of you know, preserving lives, right? I mean, they are incredibly obsessed about their customers and the health and well-being of their employees. And and frankly, all of them have that I've spoken to have done a, a really good job for an industry that's known about execution. And that continues to be high on their mind. I think the second thing that's high on their mind is how do they manage through, you know, not just manage the crisis, but also prepare beyond. Because all of them see this dichotomy of currently there's a surge in sales because people cannot go out at the same time, longer terms, people's livelihoods are threatened. And how do we come up with the right value offer? How do we adjust our channels? And so how do we also build more of a future? I think that economy, dichotomy is very much on their minds. I understand. And against that backdrop, now let's shift in and start talking about what should or could retailers do uh, going forward? Who wants to kick us off on that question? I think that there's there's many things that we're having discussions about, but let, let me just pick one, which I think has, has always been on the minds of retailers, and it has to do with how technology allows me to do a better job. Uh, and, and it's so Dimfka mentioned years in days, right? Things that took decades actually happen in a few in a few weeks or in a few days. That's also been the case for for our retailers. But the real question is how do I keep some of this up? Right. So how do I use technology? in a better way to keep up high uh, share of my sales in the e-commerce channel, right? So how do I optimize my picking? How do I optimize my delivery? How do I optimize my website and my offer to make sure that I can I can sustain a higher level of either pickup in store or, or delivery of, of orders, right? But how also do I use technology to change my store, right? So how do I in, ensure fewer touches between people in my stores, right? How do I help 
for example, cashless payments, seamless checkouts. How do I do automated cleaning of my stores, right? So the, the role of technology across the steps in the value chain for food retailers is one, one of the things that, that our clients are, are thinking through, not just doing it, but doing it faster. I understand. Uh, Dinske? Yeah, and I think I could totally agree with that. I think the, uh, one of the other things is coming back to this point of value, and that goes both ways, both for the retailer and for the customer. Because while the sales have increased a lot, actually the cost of those sales have increased as well, right? Because the actual safety that the measures that need to be taken, the channel shift where online is typically more unprofitable than, than offline. So there's a real value notion on how do we save money to reinvest back in our customers who need it so much in these times? particularly on you know, the slightly less, less essential, uh, essential items, but also increasingly essentials as we're coming out of this, this first kind of, let's say, hoarding phase. And I think retailers are also looking into that sense of like, to what extent can I use technology to actually take us to a next cost level that I can reinvest back to the customer? I understand. Now, I, I heard you talking about technology but this also must be wreaking havoc on the supply chains behind retailers. So tell me a little bit about what's happening there and how the retailers should be thinking about supply chain. Yeah, so what's fascinating about supply chain is that retailers are really good executors, right? And they use fantastic algorithms to plan their supply chain. And to cut a long story short, it's something around, and all data scientists are going to disagree with me, but it's historic sales plus or minus the weather index plus a lot of you know, festive activities and promotions. And the problem of that is that last year's sales was zero indication of today's sales in COVID time. So actually quite a lot of retailers have had to kind of unpark their algorithms and gone to a daily as an OP cycle as you know, CPG companies do to do, used to do on a weekly basis to much more radically adjust, okay, what are we seeing in terms of demand? How do we course correct? And it has to interest, led to interesting challenges for the warehouse working with a different planning than the store manager. So it's, it's been a wake-up call for even more some of our more sophisticated retailers to rethink through how do we run this supply chain truly end-to-end and make it flexible and resilient to, to, to quick shifts in demand. Because week one, nobody was buying beer. They were just buying fruits, particularly kiwis. Week three, they were super bored. They needed the beer and chips. Right? <laughs> so so it's, not, it's not the same thing all the time. Yeah. And I think, and I, just to add on to that, I think, I think thinking ahead as well and the role that re- food retailers play in the, in the broader share of stomach or whatever you want to call it, new categories, uh, uh, ready to eat food, ready to cook, uh, food require different, uh, different, potentially different value chains, a little bit more local rather than imported, right? So there's many things coming for not just the, how do I manage my daily or weekly supply chain and, and keeping the, the stores stocked? But also, where am I going to source my products from? And do I need new sources of supply because I'm changing my assortment? Because I see new opportunities for ready-to-cook or ready-to-eat meals, for example. I understand. And, and can we come back to this point around shifting loyalty? What, what does a retailer do in the face of that? So the more sophisticated ones have actually done quite some cool stuff, particularly in China, by using social means to get in, you know to stay during the lockdowns in contact with their um, in, with their uh, their customers and you know the non-food guys had it slightly more easy because there were ways to engage in you know physical activities and the usual sports apps and yoga apps and that particularly some of the fashion brands have been pushing but even you know beer players like Tsingao who use their Salesforce to then activate via WeChat some of their consumers in the store 
And also on the retailer side, people that knew kind of like the economy is coming back. I have a loyalty card. I have a customer database. We kind of proactively reach out to these customers to kind of notify them on safety measures, on health and hygiene, on great offers and on fresh to pull, try to pull them back into their former stores as well. Got it. Now, let, let's start rounding out uh, this podcast. Let me, if, if you had a senior executive, a retail senior executive in front of you now, what, what would you tell her or, or him? What are the two or three things that you would, we would tell her or him? I, I, I'm probably going to repeat myself a bit, but I, I would say double down tremendously on, on online and digital. Uh, I think it's a real must have in these days and it's just improved and that behavior is not going to go away. I think the second part for me related to that is expand your horizons. I think you have a bigger role to play in consumers as you're one of the few that, you know, has been, even though you've been had tough times, you've also had, uh, you have had it better than, for instance, the food service industry. So what role can you play to Simon's point to expanding your range, but also frankly, be a source of employment uh, for some of the people that were previously working um, in restaurants? You actually see that already. So there are quite a few people hired to help out on deliveries coming straight from restaurants. So that will be my second part. And the third one is really kind of reimagine your offer, right? What is it that you're going to bring that's going to bring consumers exclusively to your stores? Because what you bring is better value for money, is more exciting, uh, and, you know, and brings back the loyalty and uh, place to your the needs of consumers today. Simon, what would your two, three points be? You're, this is a very difficult question, Oliver, ask, after asking Dimfke. The incremental value on top of this, I, I would just add one thing to the to technology, the role that you play in the community. And I think that's that's looking at a bit of a reforming or reshaping what your ecosystem looks like, right? So um, not everything you have to do yourself. There's lots of opportunities for partnership, be it with uh, in the downstream on how you deliver products to your store, but it's also in how you organize, right? We've seen shifts happen from years and days. So what, what's my future organization look like? The role of agile and how that plays in, into, into how I organize. So it's partnerships, it's a more agile organization, and it's, it's not just in what you do, but it's also in how, how you do it. Perfect. Thank you. Listen, we're going to round off there. Let me just say a huge thank you to Dimfke and uh, Simon. This has been a fascinating conversation. To me, I've, I've learned about that. I've le- I think I've learned that we both need kiwi and beer. It just depends on which week we're talking about. That's my big takeaway. <laughs> Very true. Amongst many Very other true. things. So listen, thank you all. And uh, thank you for listening. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.